Like the man said, we are Jimmy World from the desert of Arizona. How y'all doing? When you're when you're when you're in front of like a very large audience, like a festival stage, it sort of becomes this giant persona. It's like you're performing for the the machine head at the end of at the end of Matrix Three. It's just like this. It's like yeah, it's a comprised of individuals, but it's just sort of like this entity that may or may not approve <laughs> what you're doing. I am recording. That is Jim Atkins. He talked to me away from the crowds at his home studio in the Phoenix area. Jim's the front man of the world-famous rock band Jimmy Eat World. Over the past 27 years, they've released 10 studio albums. One went platinum, another gold. In all, they've sold well over a million records and had two songs go to number one on the Billboard's alternative chart. It just takes some time to They've played all over the world at festivals like Jim was describing with tens of thousands of people in the crowd. But before any of that, they were high school kids in Mesa in the early 90s, playing shows for their friends wherever they could. Basements, barely legal, all ages art spaces, and whatever small venues in town would give them a chance, like the Mason Jar on Indian School and 24th Street. Getting a chance to, to play on an actual stage with a PA system and, you know, in a rock club, you know, it was a big thrill. (laughs) There could have been as few as 20 people at some of those early shows, but there was something special about them. I remember it being, it was really nothing like it. (laughs) You know, and you can look around the room and make eye contact with everybody there. You know, there's just a, there's just a communal sense of, of being, included of being a part of something in a you know an intimate way that you just it doesn't happen like on a large scale today the mason jar is called the rebel lounge it's a small venue only about 300 people fit in it and every year hundreds of musicians play there hoping to jumpstart their career and make it big like jim and jimmy world but the pandemic put a pause on all those shows and threatened the very existence of independently owned venues all across the U.S. On this episode, small venues across the country band together for a giant quest to save each other and save the music. Today, the Rebel Lounge is owned by Stephen Chilton, a prominent concert promoter in the Valley, better known as Psycho Steve. I wasn't the dude in the band or the cool kid. Steve never really mastered the guitar or singing, but he was good at promoting concerts, bringing people together and giving bands a crowd to play to. It was my way to sort of be involved and it was helping friends. The Psycho Steve promotion company and the Rebel Lounge have become staples in the Valley music scene putting on hundreds of concerts every year. But when COVID reached the U.S. in mid-March 2020, 
tour after tour was canceled. Suddenly, there were no shows scheduled anywhere in America. Steve hopped on Zoom with some fellow venue owners. He described the vibe of that meeting as scared and frantic. A handful of us got together and were like, there is no way we can survive this on our own. We're all going to go out of business unless we get together. No one is talking about us. Everyone's talking about the NBA. Everyone's talking about Coachella. No one is talking about the little guys. And so we got together and the first week of April announced what became NEVA. NEVA stands for the National Independent Venues Association. Steve and others have signed up more than 3,000 small venues for the organization to date. He said the first round of COVID relief for businesses, like the Paycheck Protection Program, didn't work for them because that money had to go to payroll. Venues like his... They didn't qualify for PPP because they couldn't spend it on their employees because they're closed. They cannot operate. They cannot function at all. They're at 0% revenue. And so these venues that are at 0% revenue didn't qualify for that aid. Steve and others make a convincing case that the live performance industry is the most affected of all by the pandemic. Unlike some of the arts organizations we've covered in this series, many venues don't have donors to rely on, and unlike restaurants, they couldn't do to-go orders. They were making zero dollars. Neva did a survey and found that 90% of their members were at risk of closing for good. That's nine of every 10 of America's independent venues potentially going away. Neva's mission was simple and urgent. Its initials were SOS, Save Our Stages. And it wasn't hyperbole. This was an existential crisis for America's small venues. I've been getting calls all year from venue owners and ven- you know, promoters is going like, I can hold out another month, but is, it, like, is this coming or not? I'm going to mortgage my house. I'm going to sell my car, you know, or empty my retirement. Like, should I pack up now or is this feasible? And, you know, like in April, there was zero hope. There was nothing any of us were going to do. GoFundMes were not going to work. Merchandise campaigns were not going to work. We needed something big. They needed an act of Congress to save them. But the government bails out airlines, banks, mortgage companies, and automotive manufacturers, not rock clubs. It was do or die for Neva, though, and so they turned to a decidedly non-punk strategy, lobbying. By July, Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar and Republican Senator John Cornyn introduced the Save Our Stages Act to provide grants for independent live music venue operators. And that became everyone's hope. It was like, if this happens, we can survive. If this doesn't, we're all dead. Steve booked his first show 20 years ago as a student at Mountain View High School in Mesa. Now he puts on shows at nearly every venue in town, some for thousands of people at venues like the Van Buren and the Marquee Theater. But Steve likes owning Rebel Lounge, the small venue. He's all about giving unknown artists a chance and seeing them rise through the ranks. And it is about developing bands at Rebel and then taking them to larger venues. He has a favorite saying. Not every artist that plays at these venues will become a star someday, but every star started at these venues. One local act that Steve helped launch was The Main. He said he remembers booking shows for them when they were too young to drive. 
and they had to get rides to the venue. In January 2019, Steve helped them put on their second 8123 Fest, an outdoor concert in downtown Phoenix. It's honestly, like, I don't know if I've ever had more emotions than being um, on stage during, during the two times we've been on for that. Kennedy Brock is the rhythm guitarist in the band. He told me the main fans came to Arizona from all over the world on a kind of pilgrimage for the show. There were 5,000 people there, but Kennedy said he felt like he knew them all. It's something so special. It really is. Like, I, I, I have goosebumps talking to you right now, thinking about how cool that is to have such a, 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 a tight-knit community. And, and yeah, Steve, Steve was a massive part of that. In normal times, the main travels around the world playing at venues like the Rebel Lounge everywhere. Kennedy said that without these kinds of venues, his band simply would not exist. Our lifeblood is independent venues, and, and we are actively seeing, you know, a lot of them really with chances of completely fading away. He said small venues give a place an irreplaceable character and personality, and they're a real boon to the local economy, too. For years and years and years, we've been touring in places where the venue that we go to is keeping that area of town alive. Restaurants survive off of these venues, and yeah, the food chain there is, uh, is rather connected. This food chain that Kennedy is talking about is a real thing, and a big part of Neva's argument to Congress for helping venues stay open. One study from Chicago showed that $1 spent on a ticket to a show or an art event in downtown Chicago generated $12 of economic impact in the area. But Kennedy said a lot of these local arts hubs were struggling even before COVID came. Now, he's just hoping they can hang on and still hold shows on the other side. Well, I, I uh, definitely am fearful for the, the uh, a silent future. We're, we're, we're really just hoping, hoping for the best at this point because we, man, it is a, it's, it's life or death, you know? It really is. The Maine has adapted and stayed busy during the pandemic. They've been developing a kind of social media platform for bands and fans called Pillar and playing live stream shows. But while the band is still playing virtually and interacting with fans, Kennedy said their crew, all the people that helped them behind the scenes, they're struggling without work. Venues closing and events being canceled doesn't just affect bands and the fans. It also hurts their many employees. It really pains me to think that, uh, that there are places that won't be able to do it. And I, I really, I, I think that, um, yeah, if, if, if we continue to uh, raise awareness and, and stand up, that, uh, that we can potentially save a lot of venues and a lot of livelihoods that trickle down through every aspect of the, of the music. You know, I mean, the amount of people that have worked for us in different ways through merchandise, through sound, through visuals. Uh, yeah, just put it over there. You know what, there's a milk right there. We just have thrown that It's an overcast Saturday morning outside Talking Stick Resort Arena, where the suns play. Cars pull up to volunteers wearing masks and orange vests. 
they open their trunks and load them up with boxes of food as rock music blares from a PA. It's a food drive for people who work in the live event industry, or at least used to. Uh, we did steel, uh, steel builds, um, we set up stages, we unloaded and loaded trucks. We, this is Tiffany Nagy. Um, She's 24 years old and she worked as a stagehand before the pandemic took her job away. She came through in a pickup truck with her boyfriend Dalton and their shih tzu Carmela on her lap. With no income and low income, it's been really hard. I'm trying to make it and so I'm really thankful for the food drives. She said getting a box of food and other essentials like toothpaste and laundry detergent really takes some of the financial pressure off. People do not realize, like, it's not even just like with the stagehands or road crews. You have to think about production managers. You have to think about all the H um, HR. You have to think about the people in the office, um, the accountants. Like, there is so much in stage production, and it's a huge industry that got taken away, and it, it killed out a lot of jobs. The contactless food drives happen about twice a month, and they're organized by the Phoenix-based nonprofit Musically Fed. Well, you know, there's 12 million in the entertainment industry that lost their gig. 12 million. So this is not a small thing. That's CEO Maria Bruner. She started the organization in 2016 when she realized how many military veterans across the country were hungry and how much food is wasted at big music events. Since then, they fed thousands of people with leftover catering from massive tours like U2 and Fleetwood Mac. But when COVID wiped out tours, Maria, who'd been in the music industry for 30 years, realized it was the people who worked at these events who were suddenly in need. I got a call on my office phone. It was a mail, and he said, I know you have food. I see you backstage, and you're always rolling out food. Two nights later, a woman left a similar message saying, we're going to be in desperate straits here. We can't get unemployment in the state of Arizona. In Phoenix, Maria works with a local food bank that gets unwanted but still perfectly edible food from grocery stores across the valley. But she's organized food drives for industry workers all across the country. In Tucson, Nashville, Atlanta, and L.A., she said many live event workers are contractors, so it's harder for them to get unemployment benefits. It's hard, you know, they work so hard and all of them have families, and so it's hard to see people struggle. It's Jenna Craig was an accountant with Tempe-based Rhino Staging and Event Solutions before she was furloughed. They told me they had around 400 employees in Arizona before COVID hit. Now they have 70. Volunteers from Rhino, like Jenna, run the food drive lifting boxes, registering recipients. Jenna sees a lot of her old coworkers come through and inside the boxes she gives them. There's some produce in here. There's some chicken. Um, there's some chips. Um, there's all kinds of good stuff in here. All the boxes are a little bit different. The boxes are designed to feed a family of four for two weeks. They're a lifesaver for people like Sylvia, a 71-year-old grandmother who came through the line in a minivan with her daughter. I'm barely making it with what I got. All my life savings is gone, practically gone. She did the laundry for touring acts and their crews, but since COVID came, she lost her job, and so did her three children who had to move in with her. Now there are 15 people living in her house. There's, well, my grandkids are the nine grandkids. 
They sleep in the living room. It's a three-bedroom house. Like so many others, Sylvia has struggled to get unemployment because she's self-employed. She's doing her best to get her and her family through the pandemic. And for them, the boxes make a huge difference. And, and so this food really does help. Oh, God, yes. Definitely. I'm so appreciated. I don't know how I could repay them back, but oh, my God, yeah, this helps us a lot. With the food drives, Maria Bruner and the people at Rhino are doing what they do best, what they've always done using their creativity to organize and execute an event. And as long as crowds are dangerous, they plan to keep doing the food drives across the U.S. They all hope to get back to working at concerts soon. Danielle Durack sits in her room on a sunny afternoon, softly singing and playing acoustic guitar as her brother plays the lead guitar beside her. She's preparing for a virtual show, which will be live streamed to her fans. Before COVID, she'd play about five shows a month, playing cover songs at restaurants, events, and her own stuff at small venues like the Rebel Lounge. I'd have several shows a day sometimes. Mm and playing weddings and all that. It's just like, all of that's gone. Um. She works a day job at Pizzeria Bianco to make up for the lost gigs. Live shows account for 75% of artists' income, according to Neva. But for Danielle, concerts are about much more than the money they bring in. Seeing someone like in person, like playing their instruments, it's, it's really like powerful and um, I don't know, it's feels like part of a very important part of the human experience. The 25 year old singer songwriter is on the rise. Her newly released album, No Place, has generated a ton of buzz. It was featured on NPR's All Songs Considered and on one of the biggest music blogs on the internet, Pitchfork. I can't reach new audiences, you know, in, in person, which mm. I feel like is so much more powerful than somebody reading a blog about, mm. like, her sound is mm. emotional. <laughs> but she says that none of that great press is a substitute for playing live at venues and meeting fans face-to-face. I still need the rubble lounges yeah. that are in Tennessee, you know what I mean, mm. for people. I don't have, like, a national audience, so if I'm trying to expand my audience in, like, yeah, Nashville or um, New York or even L.A., it's like... I'm not, I don't have a chance in hell mm-hmm. <laughs> at any of those places um, if they aren't independent and, you know, again, willing to ch- take a chance on somebody they don't know. If nine out of ten small venues around the country closed, stagehands and light people at Rhino would have less work and might stay unemployed, There'd be nowhere for the next Jimmy Eat World or The Main to play their very first show. No $12 spent at restaurants or other businesses for every $1 spent on ticket sales. Danielle Durack would have no place to play and introduce potential fans to her new album. No way to make a career. There'd be less music and fewer jobs. Towns and cities across America would lose a little life. Independent venues were left out of Congress's second COVID relief bill in April. From that point on, 
NEVA members focused on doing what they did best, promoting. In October, they put on a virtual music festival, SOS Fest. Huge artists like Foo Fighters, Miley Cyrus, Phoebe Bridgers, live-streamed performances from their favorite independent venues. Hashtag Save Our Stages became a thing. People all over the country held fundraisers to try to keep their venues afloat. And slowly but surely, they garnered support in Washington. Participants in this hearing today, the hearing is entitled Examining the Impact of COVID-19 on the Live Entertainment Event Industry. This is a Senate Commerce Subcommittee meeting from December 15th, 2020. At this time, Congress is working furiously to finalize another COVID relief bill. This was a critical point for NEVA and supporters of Save Our Stages. They wanted their act included in the new bill, and support was strong. Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut talked about independent venues as integral to democracy itself. Our cultural institutions are really the lifeblood of our democracy. They distinguish us as a democracy, as a country. They are examples of our cultural heritage and treasure, and we ignore their needs at our grave peril. And it wasn't just Democrats making the case for live entertainment industry relief. Here's Republican Senator from Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn. The live entertainment industry is vitally important to us in Tennessee. It is a complete sector of our state's economy. It is not something that is just there for the fun of it. It is the music business. And I appreciate what Senator Klobuchar has done with Save Our Stages. And This wasn't a funded big picture donor campaign or something. This was a real local grassroots movement. And, uh, you know, we just built this groundswell of bipartisan support. And it's like, we weren't just talking about Broadway in New York. We were talking about Broadway mm-hmm. in Nashville. And we were talking about honky-tonks in Texas and jazz clubs mm-hmm. in New Orleans. And That again was Steve Chilton. He said the lobbying effort was really centered on individuals reaching out to their representatives. Congress collectively received 2.1 million emails from constituents asking them to save their stages. Steve said what really helped was the fact that senators and representatives cared about the venues too. These are hubs of gathering for folks within the community. I don't know about you, but we're all itching to get back to the days where we can go and see Calexico or another band um, and, and, and be with our friends. That was Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema talking to KNAU back in December. She'd been a big supporter of the bill since the summer, but even taking sentiment out of the equation, Steve and the rest of Neva had a really strong case to make for SOS economically. Arts, entertainment, properties is the largest economic export of America, and we don't treat it that way. Uh, granted, that's really talking about Taylor Swift and Marvel movies, but you know, mm. but artistic cultural exports is our biggest export. It's not farming. It's not industry. Uh, you know, manufacturing. It's not oil. It's entertainment properties is what we do better than anyone else, and we underfund that segment of the economy like crazy. Recent data shows that arts and culture generate nearly nine hundred billion dollars a year. That's 4.5% of the country's GDP. Furthermore, this sector is really profitable. In 2017, 
the U.S. exported $30 billion more in arts and culture goods than it imported. And yes, a lot of that comes from the Taylor Swifts of the world who certainly aren't playing at the Rebel Lounge. But like you said earlier, Taylor Swift wanted to be Taylor Swift if she didn't have small venues to play at when she was a teenager. Yeah, so. uh, particularly the Bluebird in uh, Nashville. It's a small singer-songwriter uh, listening room. Now the Bluebird in Nashville, where America's Pride Taylor Swift launched her career, is a part of Neva, hoping to get some relief funds to stay open. Save Our Stages was an attempt to save our culture, our most valuable national exports, and our local economies. And that message resonated. Renewed hope for workers in the entertainment industry. The COVID relief package also includes the Save Our Stages Act. The Save Our Stages provision will provide $15 billion for live entertainment venues. The Washington Post called the $15 billion for small music halls, museums, symphonies, and other art venues a miracle and the largest public rescue of the arts in U.S. history. So many of us work towards that goal. And I think I truly believe that, you know, hundreds and thousands of venues are going to survive this because they were able to say, I can last that long if that's why I'm lasting. But Neva's work is far from over. Now, Steve said they're focusing on helping venues actually get the grant money. You know, we always set out that this was to save everyone. This wasn't to save the crew of us that started. This is to save mm. all the venues. And, you know, it, it grew and it includes, ta you know, talent agents, performing arts organizations. So things like symphonies and orchestras. It includes independent movie theaters now and even museums all ended up falling under this umbrella. And so now that the aid exists, we need to make sure that everyone gets it when, when it's available. Eniva and others have advocated for more aid beyond SOS. The Restart Act is another piece of legislation that did not pass in the recent relief bill. It would provide funding for a wider range of small businesses than Save Our Stages. And According to Amy Klobuchar, who strongly supports Restart, it would get money into the hands of more people that work in entertainment, such as stagehands like Tiffany and laundry people like Sylvia. SOS saved the stages, but it didn't do much for the production crew people. Furthermore, SOS is designed to get venues through 2021, not after, and a lot of people are afraid some will still close despite the aid. But as Steve and so many others said, SOS was life and death, and it passed. For now, small venues will live to see another day. Do you think that if it hadn't been for this funding, we could have feasibly seen like nine out of 10 small venues close? Absolutely. On a cold Saturday night in January, I'm at the Westgate Entertainment District, just a few hundred yards from State Farm Stadium, where cars line up around the clock for the vaccine. On stage is The Color 8, one of the few Phoenix bands to play any in-person shows during the pandemic. Max Ibarra was in the crowd as a fan that night, 
sitting on the lawn in his own PVC pipe square, the mall set up for social distancing. Yeah, I miss meeting people with a common interest that I have. It was really cool. I miss mosh pits a lot. Um, I just, I miss going to like see my friends play because I, I know a lot of people around from the Phoenix scene. And I love the smaller shows because it's so intimate. I really like the Rebel Lounge and the Crescent Ballroom. Max is 15 years old. He's a budding musician with dreams of making it himself one day. He strikes me as just the kind of kid Steve Chilton would like to put on stage to give the thrilling experience Jim Atkins of Jimmy Eat World told me about. Playing music to your friends and getting the chance to make your dreams come true. I asked Max what life would be like if 90% of the rebel lounges around town shut down. Um, it would definitely impact myself and my band's ability to finding new people to listen to our music and watch us. It also make it harder for me to find new bands and I would definitely notice that's missing from this, from Phoenix. Thanks, guys. You just listened to an entire podcast episode on the arts. So obviously, this issue carries some weight for you. To learn more about the organizations we profiled and the issues they face, visit our website, hearearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R, Arizona. Tell all your friends to check us out, too. They can search for Hear Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast series is made possible by a grant from the Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust. Here Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. Special thanks to Jimmy Eat World, Steve Chilton, Neva, The Main, Musically Fed, Danielle Durek, and The Color 8 for their help with this episode. All the music in this episode was by local artists, Kevin O'Connor, The Main, and Dank Delish. This episode was produced, written, directed, and hosted by me, Anthony Wallace. Linda Pastori is our executive producer. Hi, this is Scott Bork from Here Arizona Podcasts. Since you're still listening, you're obviously a fan of ours. We want to hear more from you. Visit hearearizona.org and take our listener survey. That's H-E-A-R Arizona.org. Thanks for listening.